We're glad you're here tonight. This summer has been a great time for us to be together and for us to have been able to uh, hear and encourage and also be encouraged from some uh, area ministers uh, close to us here in this area. And so uh, Andy's brother Jody uh, from the Northridge Church in Mount Pleasant is here this evening. And I'm going to let Andy say a few more words about him in just a moment. But uh, Jody, we're glad you're with us tonight. And uh, we have one more um, worship time next week, uh, intergenerational worship. Uh, and so I encourage you to be here for that, to encourage um, our young men and some of our uh, not-so-young men, I guess that's another way to say that, um, that will be leading us in our time of worship together. And so that, that'll be a great time together as well. I do want you to know um, Mac Ray's sister passed away today. Her name is Barbara and uh, her family. They live up in Conway, Arkansas. And so I want you to keep Mac Ray and his family in your prayers. And also tonight following service, uh, we have some desserts that are left over that many of you uh, fixed. Uh, we have some that are left over from yesterday. Uh, we fed over 400 teachers uh, in the area yesterday. Lots of food was served. Had some dessert left, and so we have those out on the table tonight. So on your way out, if you want to stop and spend a few minutes in fellowship, and I promise you the desserts are wonderful. And so thank you, ladies, for preparing those and bringing those. And to all who helped yesterday, thank you so much uh, for reaching out and encouraging our teachers. Andy? Good evening. I uh, also want to note about yesterday, we had over 50 volunteers, and like 33 of them were from our youth group. So they did a great job, and it was a good day. And Lamar Avenue really... Um, came together and it was for a good cause. So this evening our speaker is Jody Garner. He is my brother. Um, earlier I was with Miss Jean Anthony and she was trying to figure out which one he was and she said, oh, y'all walk alike. And we do. Uh, our feet point outwards. But I would like to note uh, LeBron James, when he walks, his feet point outwards as well. So uh, Jody is four years older than me. He is here with his wife, Jessica. They live in Mount Pleasant, Texas. Their daughter is in class, Addie. She uh, is three years old, and they have another child on the way. They're going to have a young, well, they're going to have a, a boy, not a, yeah, he will be young, obviously. Uh, <laughs> November, right? November, Jody? Yeah. Okay. A young baby, so yes, remember that. Uh, he will be due in... November. Uh, we're happy to have Jody here this evening. I'll tell you a little bit about him and then uh, I'll let him come up here. Uh, I always enjoy doing things like this because he's got an intro. I don't know what it is, but I'm going to try to throw him a curveball and make him have to respond to some things that I say. So I enjoy having the mic first. He might like having it last, but it doesn't bother me. Even though I'm four years older than Jody, I've kind of always protected him. Um, I've been uh, the wiser of the, the Garner boys. Uh, and I'll give you a quick story to illustrate that. When Jody was probably going to be a junior or a senior, it was around this time, except it was really hot. Today was nice and cool. Um, he got home from two-a-days football, and he was not feeling well. Our parents were somewhere else, and Jody started getting a muscle cramp. Um, and he got another one. 
and he, he got really emotional about it. Uh, he doesn't like pain, and he was hurting, and then he, he kept encouraging me to call an ambulance. He wanted me <laughs> to call 911 because he had a few muscle cramps. Uh, of course, I had, I had a little more discernment than that. I, I encouraged him to go uh, lay down. I gave him some bananas, some water. Um, he, he tried to call our parents to get them back home to whatever they were doing. So I got on the phone with my mother, and I said, Mother, I've got this. Don't you worry. We're not calling an ambulance. I'm going to take care of him. So I nursed him back to health. Uh, we had an IV laying around. I, you know, I went ahead and put it in and got some fluids running. And So that's kind of our relationship. I've always been there for him. Uh, Jody's been at Northridge for seven years. He was a youth minister first, and now he's recently transitioned to their preaching minister. He spent time in Rwanda. Uh, doing mission work in Africa, and we're excited to have him here, and I'm going to quit because most of that was uh, making fun of him, and I will let him speak. He does a wonderful job. He's a great speaker, and we are glad to have him here. I'm going to pray over him, so if he will come this way, and then we will get started. Let's pray. Lord, we, we love you, and we thank you for tonight. We thank you for the church that you have established. We pray um, for Jody and for Jessica and their, and their family, Lord, and we pray um, for him and his ministry that you will guide him, that you will guide the church in Mount Pleasant. Um, we love you, Lord. It's in your son's holy name we pray. Amen. All right. Thank you, Andy, for that uh, introduction. And if you have a Bible, turn to Mark chapter 7. And if you didn't bring a Bible... I looked up the number for you and the Bible from the slot and pew in front of you, so you can turn to page 712 if you're using that one. So you're without excuse right now, unless there's a lot of people on your row. Uh, Andy, thank you for that introduction. I didn't know you were going to tell the story of when I got a full body cramp. And uh, it was a little more serious than the way he explained it. And uh, my parents were at home. You didn't call them. And Andy was just uh, looking off in the corner uh, in shock, and he was really worried about me at the time. And I think the story changes as time goes on. All right, but I, I want to thank Patrick for the opportunity to be here tonight. It's always good to mix it up a little bit and uh, see some fresh faces. And I'm glad to be here, and I hope we can have a good study tonight. Uh, as Andy said, that's my wife, Jessica. She is pregnant. We will be having a child. The due date is November 27th. And we have a three-year-old. Well, that's your birthday, so that's a, a good day all the way around. But we're kind of hoping he comes early, so sorry about that. But, uh, um, so we have a three-year-old, and she is over in the classroom right now, and uh, I was thinking about Addie, that's her name, as I was preparing this lesson, because the way I understand it, the topic is more precious than gold, passing down the faith from generation to generation. I don't know, I think that's a combination of something Patrick told me several months ago, and then what Andy's told me since then, so if that's not what you've been studying on Wednesday nights, that's what you're getting tonight, so... That's what I'm going with, all right? Is that close to accurate? All right. So passing down the faith from generation to generation. And you know if you're a parent or a grandparent, uh, in, even beyond that, if you're some uh, you know, adult figure, mentor figure, whatever it may be, you know, we're called to make disciples. We're called to mentor and pass on the faith to the younger people. So this would apply to everyone, but since I've had a child, you know, this topic actually... It's pretty serious business to me. What does it mean to pass down the faith 
to my children. All right, so Addie is growing up a preacher's kid. You know, she was a, minute, a youth minister's kid. I was a youth minister for almost seven years. Now I'm the preaching minister. And so I'm a little bit worried about her, you know, growing up a minister's kid. Uh, Jessica was a, a preacher's kid, and um, she gets a lot of jokes when, when people find out that she was a, a preacher's daughter. They're like, oh, so that means you definitely had a wild streak in you at some point. Like, it's just assumed that that's what it'll be like for a minister's child. That's not why I'm worried about Addie. I am a little bit worried about Addie. I'm worried about Addie because I feel like she's, she's so immersed in the church culture that it might be too much. Now, that sounds counterintuitive, but let me explain. The other day, Addie was, we were having a conversation. She's three. She's, she speaks a lot. Um, I don't always know what she's talking about. But she used the word salvation in a sentence the other day. And I thought, no three-year-old should be using the word salvation in a sentence. That probably means she's been at church a little too much already. And, you know, she, she comes to church during the week to visit us. You know, she's at all the church events. She never misses, all right? So she's already kind of getting the church language down a little bit. I mean, she uses the word salvation. She hasn't used the word sanctification in a sentence yet, but I'm waiting for that one. All right, so a few weeks ago, you know, we, we say that kids go through the terrible twos. Uh, I think they should reword that to the terrible threes because she's kind of now in the rebellious stage. And every, we have a nightly routine every night. And when it's time for her to go to bed, Jessica will give her a, a warning. You know, you got five minutes, and then you got to pick your toys up. She has to pick her toys up every night before she goes to bed. And so one night, she had me in the bedroom, and she made me sit down, and then she put up fake chairs and had a songbook and a Bible, and she was playing church. So again, this is why I'm, I don't know if this is a normal thing for three-year-olds, but uh, this is what Addie's doing, all right? So the result, I guess, of growing up as a, a preacher's child, and so... So we're playing church, she's pretending to preach to me, and Jessica says, you know, you got five minutes, Addie, then you're going to have to pick up your toys and go to bed. And then she gives her the one-minute warning. And then she comes in there and she said, okay, it's time to go pick up your toys and get ready for bed. And there is where the, the rebellious fit started. And she started screaming, no. And so, you know, here we're going to have to discipline her. Uh, but before we can get to her to tell her, you know, you can't talk to your mom like that, she throws herself to the ground and she starts throwing a fit, and Jessica said, Addie, put your Bible up and go pick up your toys. And she started kicking her feet, and she said, this is the word of God. You can't take it from me. <laughs> so that's what I mean by I'm a little bit worried about uh, what exactly uh, she's picking up when she's around us, and she hears this church language. Earlier this summer, we were in a little kiddie pool, and... Um, after we were playing for a little while, she said she wanted to baptize me. And then she wanted me to baptize her. So she's actually, I don't know if we count that or not, but um, <laughs> she was immersed you know, fully under the water. She, so she likes to play church and baptism and stuff like that. And, and so, okay, passing down the faith from generation to generation. All right, that's something from Deuteronomy 6 onward, you know, people of God are commanded to do. In Deuteronomy 6, it's known as the Shema, Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You're familiar with that from Deuteronomy 6. And as you read on in the chapter, they are told to impress these laws and these commands on their children. To talk about them when you walk up and down the road. And to write it on your door frames and in your houses. So the idea is there of passing on the faith from generation to generation. Like that's how... 
That's the first way we operate, is we pass the faith on through our family, and then hopefully we reach out beyond just our family. But as I was thinking about this lesson, one of the things that I was kind of wrestling with is what is the faith that we're passing down? You know, what faith are we passing down to our children? Am I required, is the primary form, expression of faith that I'm supposed to pass on to Addie is a faith of Church of Christ doctrine? Like, do I want her to grow up and know all the great arguments about why we don't use musical instruments and she can go out and fight with people who are of a different denomination? Is that the kind of faith that I'm called to pass down? Is the type of faith we're called to pass down every single detail that we believe in and our faith in Christ in church is kind of mixed in with our political views? Is that what we're supposed to pass down? So I've been thinking about what does it mean? What would it look like for me to pass down a faith to my child or my children, as we're about to have a, a young baby, as Andy said, you know, what does that look like to pass down the faith to them? What do I want them to become as disciples of Jesus Christ in the 21st century? What is that going to look like? All right, so I want to use Mark as an example this evening. And I ask you to turn to Mark chapter 7. And uh, we're going to do some textual stuff. We'll look at this passage. And then as, after I kind of explain it, I think you'll maybe get an idea of where I'm going with it, but I'll, I'll bring it back together. All right, so I'm kind of wrestling with the idea is what, what kind of faith are we passing down? So look at this kind of obscure story here in Mark chapter 7, beginning in verse 24. Jesus left that place and went to the village of Tyre. Now, some would pronounce it Tyree, and uh, the only way to know how they really pronounced it would be to go back then. So nobody knows. So I'm going to pronounce it Tyre. All right, so that's where, this is where he's headed. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it, yet he could not keep his presence secret. In fact, as soon as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an impure spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek, born in Syrian Phoenicia. She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. Here's Jesus' response to her. First, let the children eat all they want, he told her, for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. All right, just pause right there for just a moment. What do you do with the text when Jesus says something unchristlike? All right, so at our first glance, we're like, wait a minute. That sounds like something the disciples would have said that Jesus would have rebuked them for saying. But that's not the disciples. This is Jesus saying it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Since when does Jesus refuse to heal somebody? Especially when they have some expression of faith in him. And he's a little bit reluctant. And he gives what sounds like to us an offensive statement. You know, it seems a little bit harsh. So look at her response in verse 28. Lord, she replied, even the dogs eat the the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Then he told her, for such a reply, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. She went home and found her child lying on the bed and the demon gone. All right, so this is a really interesting story, in my opinion. All right, in Matthew chapter 15, I won't ask you to turn there if you want to glance at it. If you don't believe me, you can, but it, we have a very similar story. Matthew refers to her as the Canaanite woman. Mark refers to her as the Syrophoenician woman. All right, it's the same idea. The Canaanite is like the biblical term. Syrophoenicia is where she's from. Matthew, most people believe that Mark was the first one to write his gospel down. Matthew and Luke came a little bit later, and they used Mark as an outline. So if you go with that, then Matthew is kind of using Mark as an outline, and he adds a few details in it. In Matthew's gospel, in Matthew chapter 15, when the woman comes up to him, expresses the desire for her daughter to be healed, 
we're told that Jesus doesn't say anything. At first, he's silent. And then his disciples speak up, according to Matthew, and they say, send her away. You know, she's bugging us. Send her away. And then Jesus finally responds, and he says, I was sent to the lost sheep of Israel. And then they have a similar dialogue. So that's kind of the details that Matthew adds in. All right, so it's a weird story. And I've had... Over, over the last several years, I've had a few requests from different people at church ask to do a sermon on this story because they've never understood it. They're, they're perplexed by it. Why would Jesus respond to her in the way that he does? So let's look back at verse 24. Let me just go over a, a couple of quick things with you to help us understand this. First, it's where Jesus goes. Now, I'm going to look at the bigger picture of Mark here in, in a few minutes, but location is important. That's one of the things I'm starting to discover when you read the Gospels. Location, where Jesus travels to, sometimes sheds a lot of light on what he's teaching. So he travels intentionally into a Gentile area, the city of Tyre. Okay, so according to Josephus, the great Jewish historian, uh, there was a lot of tension between Jews and the Gentiles living in Tyre. Uh, Apparently there was some violence that had taken place, and, and much like Jews and Samaritans and Jews and Romans, and apparently the Jews didn't get along with a lot of people, but they didn't get along with the people of Tyre either. All right, so Jesus is entering a place outside of his normal area, the normal area the Jews would be in. He enters a place that's potentially hostile, all right, but he intentionally goes there. And Mark shows us that he's going there with a purpose, all right? So something is being accomplished here in Mark. And then in verse 25, he tries to keep his identity a secret, which you see throughout Mark's gospel, and he's usually unsuccessful at keeping his identity a secret. And then look at verse 26. Here comes this this person, all right? And Mark kind of presents her, as he does throughout his gospel, as an outsider. All right, so she, she comes to him, and he intentionally tells us she's a Greek. All right, that means she's a Gentile. Uh, she's a Canaanite or a Syrophoenician, and she's a woman. All right, so in that culture, you know, all of those things don't mix when it comes to talking to a male, because it's a male-dominated society, coming up to a male rabbi, speaking to him publicly, and making this request. So in all areas, according to the Jewish faith, she's a big-time outsider. And so the response that Jesus initially gives, it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs, That would have been a very typical response that a Jew would have given to a Gentile. Especially in Jesus' position as a healer, as a teacher, as a rabbi. You know, most rabbis probably wouldn't travel to the places Jesus traveled to, but if they did, they would have given a similar response. The children here in in verse 27, the children represent the Israelites, and the dogs represent the Jews. It's not the only time they're called and referred to as dogs. So it sounds harsh, it sounds offensive, but I really think what Jesus is doing, because I do believe that Jesus was the wisest teacher who's ever lived, and that he knew what he was doing pretty much at all times, well, at all times, not pretty much at all times. And so usually he's doing something. Like he's teaching us something here. He's teaching his disciples something. All right, so he's just kind of responding on the way that they would probably normally expect. Now, at the beginning of verse 27, he, f- he says, first, let the children eat all they want, referring to the Israelites. Some people believe that what that means is, you know, like Paul says in Romans 1.16, the gospel is going to be preached first to the Jews, then to the Gentiles. 
So some people believe there's a little hint of that there. But most people believe that what Jesus is doing is he is just saying what they would expect somebody like him to say. All right? He probably, most Jews probably at that, in that culture were raised being taught that Canaanites were barbarians. And I'm sure the Canaanites were raised being taught that the Jews were the ones that kicked them out of their land. Now, if, if you know your Old Testament, you could go back to the book of Joshua and the promised land that Joshua brought the Israelites into was the land of Canaan. All right, and they kick them kind of out of their land and then take that land over as their land. All right, so there's a long history there between Jews and Canaanites, Jews and Syrophoenicians. So Jesus gives her this statement. And then she responds pretty uniquely. You know, if, that was, if I was in that situation and anybody were to talk to me like that, I'm not sure how I would respond but it, it probably wouldn't be very nice back, because that's how we are as human beings. Somebody speaks to us harshly like that, we probably are either going to walk away or we're going to engage in a heated debate. But that's not what she does. Lord, she replied, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. So she has a very wise saying. It's almost like Jesus presents a riddle for her and, or a test, and she passes the test. So Jesus says, at a distance. He doesn't go to her daughter. He just says, for such a reply, the demon has left your daughter. All right, so she's healed. In Matthew's Gospel, Jesus commends her for her great faith. Like, it's almost like she had a test of faith and she passed. Now, the Greek word that's used for the, her great faith could literally be translated in Matthew's Gospel as mega. Like she has this mega faith. She has this great faith about her. And you compare that, especially in Mark's gospel or Matthew's gospel, to the faith of the disciples, and they always seemed a little bit confused, like they didn't get it. All right, so there's, there's kind of two areas here to understand this. One is, if you look at what Mark's doing in his entire gospel, I don't want to lose you with all this textual stuff, but, but Mark has a lot of sub-stories within the bigger story. All right, so the big story is the good news of Jesus Christ. The kingdom has come. Right? Jesus was ushering in the kingdom. That's the big story. But within the big story, Mark tells a lot of sub-stories that match the bigger story. So this right here, Jesus traveling to a Gentile territory, is a part of one of those sub-stories. So I'll give you the, the context of this sub-story. Uh, beginning in Mark chapter 6, verse 30, Jesus is in a Jewish territory. And I'll just kind of skim over these stories real quick. Jesus is in a Jewish territory, and he miraculously feeds 5,000 people All right, in a Jewish territory. Then he walks on water. And then at the beginning of Mark chapter 7, he has this discourse back and forth with the Pharisees about what is really considered clean and unclean. And then if you look at Mark chapter 7, verse 19, uh, Mark gives his commentary on what Jesus is saying at the end of verse 19 of chapter 7. He says, in saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. All right, so obviously Jesus is doing something new. And in this section, he begins with the feeding of the 5,000 in the Jewish territory. He declares all foods clean, and then he intentionally travels over to a Gentile territory. All right, and he has this conversation with this woman. And then in chapter, Mark chapter 8, beginning in verse 1, Jesus is going to feed the 4,000. All right, so there's two stories here of miraculous feeding. And those are the brackets of this sub-story. Right, one is a miraculous feeding 
of the Jews, one is a miraculous feeding of the Gentiles. So everything that happens in between, usually in Mark's gospel, is it's telling you something. Everything in there is intentional, and it fits what, what is bracketed around it. So he starts in a Jewish area, and he winds up in a Gentile area. Mark's audience in the first century, as you know if you've studied church history, then one of the biggest problems that first century church was facing was not just persecution, but learning to integrate Jews and Gentiles together. And most people assume, or they think, that when Mark writes his gospel, you know, the, the early Christians were using synagogues initially as a place of worship, but by this time they had probably been kicked, the Christians had been kicked out of the synagogues and were now having to worship in houses. But because they believe in Jesus and they're followers of Jesus, they are called, as you read the book of Acts, they are called to have an integrated worship service together. Jews and Gentiles somehow are supposed to be unified together. And there was a lot of tension with that. There was a lot of problems with that. That was a long road of learning how to be together. And so this story of this healing of this Syrophoenician woman, it's kind of like a metaphor for the bigger problems that they were facing, right? At first, there's a little resistance. Jesus doesn't heal her right away. So that first century audience probably recognized a similar tension between Jews and Gentiles. But then what does Jesus do? He heals her daughter. He commends her faith. And in doing so, he accepts Gentiles as well. So not only is Jesus a shepherd for the Jews and feeding them and having them lie down in the pasture like, they, like they're sheep to a shepherd, he does the same thing for the Gentiles at the beginning of Mark chapter 8. All right, so the first century audience probably would have heard a message. All right, we have to accept each other. We have to learn to, to work this thing out for us to be together. All right? And, and in the actual story itself, beyond just what Mark's first century audience probably would have heard, is they, the, the disciples, I, I do believe, they received a little test. I think they were being tested on their love because in Matthew's gospel, in Matthew chapter 15, you know, Jesus was silent initially. He doesn't say anything, and so the disciples speak up. And I think Jesus was constantly training and testing them to see how much love they're going to have. You know, are you going to be an advocate for a woman of a different tribe? Are you going to be an advocate for a woman of a different race? You know, or are you going to stand up against her and push her away? And I do believe that in this particular story, the disciples failed the test. Luckily, they get a chance to take many other tests. And I think that her faith also was something that Jesus was doing, was showing that an outsider can also have strong faith and sometimes better faith than those who are insiders. All right, so it's, a, it's an example of faith and it's an example of love. All right, so back to the topic. Passing down the generation, passing down the faith from generation to generation. So what kind of faith are we passing down? All right, so I think of Mark's gospel, and I think of the, the gospel itself, the word gospel, good news. All right, in our Church of Christ tradition, or at least from what I've been exposed to, um, I would say, I would argue, and I don't mean, mean this to be offensive, but I believe we've kind of preached a small gospel. Like I, the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, Right? And when we're baptized into Christ, we receive the forgiveness of our sins. So that's the gospel that we go around preaching. But I, I'm afraid sometimes that's all we present is just that. And I do believe the gospel 
is for an individual to save you from your sins, but I believe the gospel is much bigger than that. And I think in Mark's gospel, that's what Jesus is doing. That's what Mark is presenting, that Jesus came and the kingdom of God that he was ushering in was a very big gospel that didn't just save you from your sins, but it saved you for a purpose. I think the gospel is a gospel that redeems people. It's a gospel that transforms people. And I believe we're called to believe in a big gospel. All right, so let me use a few examples. Martin Luther King Jr., everybody knows that name. Um, At the beginning, uh, towards the end of 1955, you know, the Rosa Parks bus situation, um, in the beginning, in, in January of 1956, there was the bus boycott in Montgomery, and Martin Luther King Jr. was kind of brought in to be sort of a voice for that, kind of a leader in that movement. And as you know, if you've studied or paid attention at all, uh, that was a dangerous game for him in that time. He was receiving a lot of death threats. It wasn't a safe area for him. All right, so on January 27, 1956, he went home with his family, and he had been preaching unity. Uh, He had been preaching uh, racial reconciliation, all right, and, and that all people are created equal. You know what he was going around preaching And he had been receiving these death threats, didn't think much about it. But then one night he received a phone call as he was getting ready for bed. And it was a very aggressive person on the the line and basically said, if you you have three days to get out of here or I'm going to shoot you and I'm going to kill your family. All right, so he tried to go to bed that night, but he couldn't get that voice out of his head. So he went back in the kitchen and he was praying and he was was frustrated with God. He was frustrated. You know, he was just trying to be obedient to what God has called him to do. And it's this dangerous, it's this bad. And you know, I've never heard the audible voice of God, but he said he heard a voice that night. And the voice was just like a soft, simple voice that just said, press on. Like, keep preaching. Don't give up. And I don't know if that was something in his conscience. I don't know if that was something, a burning in his heart that he heard. I don't know what it was. But from that moment forward, on January 27th, 1956, you know the rest of the story, what Martin Luther King Jr. was able to do. In the midst of all this danger, he went out preaching a very big gospel. That the gospel of Jesus is not just to save you from your individual sins, but the gospel, it brings people together. Black, white, Hispanic, whatever you are, it brings people together. Rich or poor, it brings people together. That's what the gospel, that's a big picture of the gospel. It redeems people, it reconciles people that would not normally be together. So four years later, on February 24th, 1960, at the ACU lectureship, now 1960, it might have been Abilene Christian College, but a man named Carl Spain was asked to speak one night. And there was a lot of buzz in the air before he got up to speak because rumor had been spreading what he was, going, he was planning on talking about. All right, so he went up in front of everybody he was in front of, and he spoke a really tough message. And he had told some stories several years before that. Um, And at his white church, there were some black individuals in that community that they had invited to come to church and said that you would be received, you'd be more than welcome here. But when they got to that church, they actually were surprised that their church members did not receive and accept them. Right? And so, so they realized they have a long road ahead of them. This is not the gospel that Jesus preached to exclude and to keep people outside. And so a few years later, 
some individuals from the black church wanted to come and, and use their baptistry. And they were not accepted. They, were reject, they weren't allowed to even come in and use the baptistry. All right, so he's motivated by this experience. And in 1960, on February 24th, he gets up and he speaks and he, he retells these stories. And he said, I believe if Jesus were here today, he would call us all hypocrites. You know, we claim that, that we know the gospel, that we're the, the right church, and yet we exclude people because of the color of their skin. All right, now that speech he gave that night, from what I understand, kind of ruined his preaching career. There was a lot of people that had him lined up to come speak, and they started canceling him like crazy right after that because they were offended at what he was teaching, and he knew he was going to catch a lot of backlash, but he did it anyways because he believed that the gospel that Jesus came to bring was a very big gospel. It was a bold gospel, a gospel that transforms and changes people. look Look at Mark chapter 8. I'll finish off this little section here. There's kind of some weird stuff in in this section here in Mark chapter 8, but we'll begin in verse 14. The disciples had forgotten to bring bread except for the one loaf they had with them in the boat. Be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. So the disciples, they always seem to not have bread with them in Mark, and they always seem to be confused. So verse 16, they discussed this with one another and said, it is a It is because we have no bread. Like they're confused. What does Jesus mean by the yeast of the Pharisees? Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, Why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts still hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see? Do you have ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. And when they broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls did you pick up? They answered seven. He said to them, do you still not understand? So this is weird. All right, Jesus is doing some weird stuff with numbers here. And at first glance, you may think, what does this mean? All right, I'll tell you, Dr. Martin, um, that's his last name, I don't remember his first name, but he was, he's a professor at Lubbock Christian, and he's a, a scholar in the Gospel of Mark, and and his take on the numbers is that the, the 5,000 that Jesus feeds in the, in the uh, Jewish territory represents the Torah, the five books of the Torah. All right? And then they pick up 12 baskets full, and 12 would represent the 12 tribes of Israel. And then Jesus feeds the 4,000 in the Gentile territory, and Mark relies heavily on Isaiah from the Old Testament. And they believe the 4,000 represents the four winds from Isaiah, and then they pick up seven basketfuls after the Gentile feeding. Uh, and we all know that seven means completion or perfection, wholeness. All right, so the numbers is just another way that Jesus was trying to express to them, do you not understand what I'm doing? Like, I, I wasn't just sent to reconcile the Israelites. He was sent to bring in a gospel for all nations, for all people not just the Jews, not just a particular tribe, not just a particular race, but for all people. He came ushering in a really big gospel. And I believe Jesus had big dreams with that. Like he knew that they could change the world and at least take some big steps in that area. And, And I've used the kind of the racial reconciliation as an example, but you could use rich and poor, you could use all kinds of examples to fit what it means that Jesus believed in a really big gospel. Jesus really believed that. So in Mount Pleasant, um, 
I understand that the last few years, you guys have been uh, trying to decide what it means to be a church that impacts your community. I would say we're kind of in the same area. In Mount Pleasant, our church, we have about 400 members, and if you came on a Sunday morning, you would have anywhere from 280 to 350. That's how much we vary. But, and we have, we're a little bit racially diverse, but not really. Uh, it's a predominantly white church. But in our town, we are 70% Hispanic. All right, so as you study missions, if you just study the Bible in general, you would say, wait a minute, something's not lining up here. We're not reaching the entire demographics of our community. And as we are searching for a new youth minister, uh, this is one of the things we were talking about. What do we want to stand for? Are we going to keep being kind of an inward-focused church that just focuses on, you know, making each other feel good, be happy about coming to a worship service? Are we going to get serious about the mission that God has sent us on and try to reach people in our community? And we have the opportunity uh, to hire a Hispanic guy to come in who speaks fluent English and Spanish to be our new youth minister. But in all these long meetings with elders and the search committee, you know, talking about this, praying about this, I was kind of surprised. To me, it was a no-brainer, all right? But I've spent a lot of time in missions classes, and in my opinion, I'm like, yeah, let's go, let's do it. Uh, but I, I was kind of surprised to see the amount of people that didn't understand why hiring somebody that spoke Spanish in a town that's 70% Hispanic is even important. And so it was a long road to express to them, guys, somehow we've been taught this really small gospel, like it's just for us to be saved from our individual sins, to get our ticket to heaven, and then we're done. And then we just kind of focus on making each other happy until it's all over. But that's not the gospel that Jesus brought to this earth. Jesus brought a really big gospel where he believed that people can be redeemed and people can be reconciled. All right, so when I think about passing down the faith from generation to generation, and what, I want, what kind of faith do I want to pass on to my kids? And to any other teenagers or kids we may be mentoring. You know, that's the kind of gospel that I, that's the kind of faith that I want to pass down. It's a faith that says, because of your faith in Jesus Christ, because you believe in the gospel that Jesus brought, you have a purpose on this earth. As long as you're still here, you need to redeem, to reconcile, to integrate and to reach all peoples in all nations, like Jesus called his disciples to do. And yeah, they had a lot of difficulties with it, but that's what they were called to do. And that's the kind of faith that I think we should be passing down. It's the kind of faith that I want to pass down to my children. All right, so that's our, our lesson for this evening. I want to close this out in a prayer, and I believe that'll be it. All right, so let's have a prayer. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for Jesus Christ. Father, for the life that he lived almost 2,000 years ago, but we know the story is much bigger than that. We know that before he was even born into this world, he was with you. He was with you from the beginning, and he's with you now, and he's with us right now. And Lord, we thank you, Father, for um, the life that he lived. We thank you for his death on a cross, for the resurrection. We thank you for the forgiveness of sins that we are afforded that we are, we are blessed with, but Lord, we also pray that we can believe in what Jesus believed in and that we will um, take part in what you're doing in this world and try to reach beyond just ourselves, Father, to reach people that are really hurting, that are broken, 
and that need a gospel message, that need good news. Lord, help us to be good news to a world that needs the good news of Jesus. Father, we thank you for this avenue of prayer. I pray that you bless this church here at Lamar Avenue. I bless them for now and for the future. Father, help them to always seek to know you and to help each other to become more like you. And Lord, we thank you that we can pray to you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. God bless you.